everyone to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to this crazy life we're now all living. It is time for laughter in the time of coronavirus. And with that, I want to introduce you to my guest this evening. Hopefully, this will give you a little break from all the depressing news. I hope you're reading. I hope you're enjoying life with your family uh, as much as you can. Um, But my guest tonight is David Mish. He, um, (laughs) I'm going to condense his bio because it's pretty, pretty long. Um, He, after graduating from Pomona college, he moved to Boston where he wrote political satire, which I love hosted a live musical radio show and performed as a comic folk singer and a stand-up comedian at colleges and coffee houses and nightclubs in new England and the Midwest. Don't ask me why doing one in the Midwest. We'll find out. His song <laughs> Somerville was released nationally by Fretless Records and was named, he was named Best Comedian in Boston by Boston Magazine. He moved to California to write for Mork and Mindy, one of my all-time favorite shows, which was nominated for two Emmy Awards. He also co-wrote Leave It to Dave, the pilot for Dave Letterman's first talk show. He's since written, created, and or produced programs for all the major networks and many of the major and and minor film cable outlets. Uh, Among his credits, he co-wrote and directed an episode of the syndicated series Monsters, which was chosen for competition at the Banff International Television Festival. He was the executive story editor on the legendary Zucker Abrams. Abram Zucker series Police Squad exclamation point co-writer and producer of Callahan a pilot later screened at the LA Museum of Art Television Festival he was a guest writer on Saturday Night Live he was also the executive consultant on She Spies which was chosen one of five TV spies to love by Time Magazine and wrote the TV movie Behind the Camera the unauthorized story of Mork and Mindy. His books include A Beginner's Guide to Corruption, which um, either Penn or Teller, I'm not sure, said that you, David Mish, was one hilarious, funny mother, you know what. It is my pleasure to welcome funny man David Mish to the show. Hi, David. How are you tonight? I'm I'm constantly funny. That's how I am. There is not a word out of my mouth that does not bring gales of laughter. Now, there are some people who don't really have a great sense of humor who might not understand that if I say, hi, Pam, that is in itself funny. But I just feel sad for those people. (laughs) I do, too. um, (laughs) By the way, one thing, long and detailed as that intro was, you left out the main book I wrote, which is Funny, the book, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Comedy, which covers kind of what the title says. Well, and you know, I was I have that pulled up on your website and um you also wrote a beginner's guide to corruption and you you have some other things that you've written cuz you've written them for a lot of um uh magazines and newspapers as well. I don't even know if I could um if I could go through the list it's quite long. But let's do start off with your books. Let's talk about the first one, Funny, the book, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Comedy. And I love that you have on there um, the nosing glasses that were made famous by um, one of the – what's the comedian's name Groucho. that did that? Groucho, Groucho Marx. Right. Groucho Marx. So tell me, 
Why did you decide to write this? After, and did you write it after your long career, or did you write it? Why? Just tell me why. <laughs> well, um, it goes back to Pomona College, where I took a course called it was junior senior year. Cause it was the point being it was later in my college life, and I didn't have to be weighed down by mandatory courses, compulsory. What I can't even remember what they're called now. But anyway, uh, there was a course Your called Freud, Marx, and Contemporary Literature, and I thought that's an interesting combination of things. I love it. And uh-huh. it was the first and maybe only multidisciplinary course I took in college, and it blew me away. I loved it. I loved the way they took things from all different arenas of intellectual um, exploration and put them together. And that was kind of in my head when I uh, – when I started stopped selling things so many times in uh, comedy and professional comedy and had a little extra time and started getting into teaching. And I thought, I want to do a course that will be like that, that will be about comedy because that's what I know and I love, but will bring in everything. And, in fact, I did. Every week I covered wow. this class, a different aspect of comedy. There was an anthropology week where we looked into uh, what scientists have learned about the beginnings of laughter and the beginnings of humor and uh, uh, one on psychology and one on um, uh, science. The biology is really the main area, how the biological effects of humor and, uh, again, where it comes from. And um, uh, Freud and stuff like that and the psychology week. And there were just so many uh, fascinating aspects to it. And then uh, someone told me you should turn that into a book, so I did. Uh, and I had to leave out a huge amount. Uh, the, the publisher only gave me 175 pages, but I crammed in as much as I could, and it was a, a wonderful experience. You know, when I think of Freud and comedy, it almost seems like an oxymoron to me. Um, but, but he actually but, wrote a book. He wrote a book called The Joke. Uh, and uh, I, oop, I forget the subtitle. But anyway, yeah, he wrote about humor. He, in fact, he is one of the main people with uh, uh, significant theories of humor. Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, is another one. Uh, uh, but Freud uh, had what he called relief theory, which uh, in some of the talks I do now, I do some public speaking about comedy, and I say that Freud took time off from masturbating to invent relief theory, which says that uh, laughter is uh, an expression of relief uh, when something that's hidden uh, suddenly comes out in a great burst. And I think, where on earth could he have gotten that idea of something coming out in a great burst? It's baffling, but somehow he did. Anyway, so Freud actually had a strong relationship with comedy. He also tried to explain jokes, and he said that... um, no joke can be meaningless, that uh, every joke had a point to it, even if it seems simply absurd. I want to um, kind of, we're going to hold that thought because I have so many questions about what you just crammed into, you know, <laughs> that quick three minutes there. Um, I want to go back to the beginning before you you were a comedian and and wrote and and did everything that you did. Were you enthralled by comedy as a youngster? Yeah. Uh, the earliest memory I have is reading on my uh, the, the floor of my bedroom uh, people like S.J. Perlman and James Thurber. Thurber was really my hero was for about good. Yeah. 20 years of my life. 
Ann Perlman's spectacular, but all sorts of uh, humorous. I just delved deeply into it. And then I began writing, and I wrote, as I think most writers do, really, really bad versions of James Thurber and other of my heroes. But over the years, they became less bad, and they became less rip-offs, and they became more expressions of my own humor. But like every, you know, the whole thing about, I'm fascinated by the idea of intellectual property and copyright, because any artist will tell you, Bob Dylan being one of the most significant, that they steal everything. Everything is stolen. The trick is right. not to not steal. The trick is to, to disguise it. But you're not disguising it maliciously. You're disguising it by making it your own. You make your it your own. own voice. So Dylan takes melodies and lyrics that are right out of other things, traditional folk songs and uh, poems and things like that, but he makes them so much his own, no one could say they were actually stolen. And... Uh, there was a singer-songwriter named Tom Lehrer from the 1950s and yes. 60s oh, people yes. have heard of. And so much humor is is yes. totally enthralled to Tom Lehrer. His underplaying uh, and his wit and his wordplay, oh, God, I loved him. And sometimes I do something and I think, oh, my God, I've just stolen from Tom Lehrer. Even though it isn't a literal steal, it's I've stolen his voice. <laughs> but, but anyway, Tom so, yeah, Lehrer, I loved it. He was he was just legendary, and I remember um, as a child my folks had an old record player, and so they had stuff on Tom Lair, and they also had television bloopers. Do you remember those yeah, albums? I do remember. I had that same and, record. <laughs> oh my gosh! They must have had. A I, I know the title. Them. It was "Pardon My Blooper." Yes, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> And it was so much fun to listen to. And my brothers yeah. and I, when my folks would have a gathering of their friends over, they'd put that on. And mm-hmm. um, and my, I didn't know what any of it meant because we were too young. Yeah. But we Absolutely. remembered laughing with everyone. And and so it now brings me back to what you were talking about, um, about Freud and the others talking about laughter. You know, the expression is laughter is the best medicine. Is it? No. Uh, as I point out in the book, uh, penicillin is better. There you uh, go. <laughs> and I've actually read fairly heavily in the literature of uh, humor and medicine because it's a fascinating topic. And most people think that's true, that laughter really can help a tremendous amount. And the answer is kind of. There have been a lot of studies, and they really have very few um, results that show unequivocally it will make you better. But there is no question it has an effect. Um, it, let's see, where is this thing? Oh, yeah, it, uh, it, uh, it, it, sh- it increases endorphins. It increases pain tolerance, production of T cells and oxygen levels in the brain. It lowers blood sugar, alleviates stress. So it does all sorts of wonderful things, but uh, it won't just, you know, you can't watch a Marx Brothers movie and be cured of cancer. But right. there's no harm in doing it because the fact is it has no side effects except more of it, and it doesn't cost anything. Uh, if you have a television set, it's pretty available or a computer. Uh, so, And there's no question it'll make you feel a little better. It won't necessarily Absolutely. cure your disease, but it will make you feel better. So I'm all right. for it. And for me, Absolutely. I'm a bit of an, uh, of an, a bit of an addict. In college, uh, I... Decided I had wrote, written some funny songs, and I decided to perform them at the college coffee house. And 
I got this wonderful reaction, and it was only many years later I realized it was because all my friends had come and they were all drunk. It didn't actually mean I was any good, but I just became addicted to that cackling sound after I'd said something and uh, really wanted to make other people make that noise, and that's why I got into writing. And I I didn't feel the need to get it myself. I was happy if someone like Robin Williams could say something and make the audience laugh. I took possession of that laughter. Fuck Robin, I said, that's mine. That's right. That's (laughs) right. You know, um, it occurs to me that it took a lot of courage for you to get up and and do stand-up or do these kind of comedic folk songs that you were singing. Um, Did you ever feel shy about doing that? Were you nervous at all? Or did yeah, you I, I was tremendously really? nervous. And But, you know, lots of performers talk about being very nervous, and the trick is to make it work for you, which I don't think I did. I think it actually hurt me. However, uh, since uh, in the last few years, since deciding I didn't want to teach anymore because it was too tiring, <laughs> I've been yeah. doing talks all around the country. That's now over for a while, but I've just done my first Zoom one, and it went very well, so hopefully there'll, there'll be more of those. But anyway, I do these talks, and it's as if I'm back in the old days because I say funny things. And I show funny clips, and uh, people enjoy it, and I just love that laughter. It so turns me on, and now I'm not nervous anymore because I've been doing it so much. So now it's nothing but pleasure. (laughs) How wonderful. Um, I'm fascinated by Mork and Mindy. um, I remember exactly where I was in time and place when that show came on. I remember exactly where I was. How did you come to be one of the writers for Mork and Mindy? Well, that's just sort of essentially a boring showbiz story, but I'll make it as short as possible, which is that uh, I had performed for a guy in New York who was a famous showbiz manager. He and his partners managed Woody Allen, David Letterman, Billy Crystal, a whole bunch of people. Wow. And he uh, thought I was interesting, and then I sent him some stuff I'd written, and he thought it was great, and he got me a job on this new show called Mork and Mindy, and he said it was about an alien. And I thought, oh, my God, my favorite Martian, which was a show some of your listeners oh, will know that. won't. Yeah. But oh, the I only thing show. about that show was <laughs> that the actor who played the Martian had antenna rise up from his head once in a while, okay. and I just watched right. purely to see those antenna come up. But anyway, it was a terrible show, and I think even then I knew it, and uh, I was horrified at the thought I'd be writing something terrible like that, and he said, actually, we manage uh, the guy who's going to star, and he's pretty good. I think you'll like him. So I met Robin before the show started through the manager, and we schmoozed in the parking lot of the comedy store about what the show would be like, and he was very idealistic and thought we could bring a real hip sensibility to TV comedy, and I was no pro. It was the first TV job I ever had, but I knew enough to know he was totally wrong (laughs) and that there was no way we were going to bring a truly hip sensibility, but he would bring hip sensibility, and he would be great, and indeed that's what happened. I don't think the writing on the show was that brilliant. It was good, but Robin was brilliant. And by the way, to answer the question anyone who's seen the show has, he did not ad-lib the show. In fact, he did very little ad-libbing that got on TV because most of the ad-libbing he did, and he did a lot on the set, was grabbing his crotch and swearing. Uh, He did hilarious things, but they were pretty dirty. Uh, So that couldn't go on TV. 
but the the sensibility he brought, the way he used his voice and body, and yeah. occasional lines he would throw in that were great. Uh, he made the show, so he didn't write the show, but he made it. Boy, you're not kidding. Um, I remember thinking, and you know, it's funny because I used to watch my favorite Martian, and it never even dawned. I never made the connection to aliens until you <laughs> mentioned it now. Uh, but you're right, and he was quite a personality. And so, perhaps you're right. Maybe with with another actor, it would not have worked as well. I don't think so. I think it would have been yeah. my favorite Martian all over again, frankly. Yeah. But you know, yeah. the other thing is, when you've got someone like that, when you're writing for someone like Robin, you got to up your game. So I think all the writers were conscious of. And also, Robin was a smart guy, and he stood up for for himself from the beginning. He wouldn't do shit. He would not do terrible hackneyed material. So right. if it wasn't good, he would not enjoy it. Uh, so we tried to make it as good as possible. I still remember there was a show that was very famous, an episode of Mork and Mindy, that Raquel Welch, who, again, for those listeners who don't know, was the right. sexual of the 70s. She um, was booked to do one of our episodes, and we were really confused. I mean, it was the year that ABC was pushing what they called Jiggle, uh, so it was just a purely exploitation episode, and we were horrified at it. And an outside writer was given the script, and he did a terrible job. So all of us got to work, and in three days, we all of us split it up in the different sections, and we worked as hard as we ever had because we didn't want to be humiliated on national television. And the script actually turned out great. It was filled with hilarious lines. It was still a very questionable thing because she was in a bikini at the time, and it was just uh, so embarrassing. But I still feel proud of that script that we rescued something that could have been utterly humiliating and made it better than that. <laughs> I think that's great. Now, you besides doing television, you you wrote for the first season for David Letterman. I'm assuming you were one of the writers. Aren't there generally a group no, of writers? No, there wasn't a season. This was Leave It to Dave was a pilot. It was oh. the show that got him hired to do his first series. But ah. his girlfriend, Meryl Marco, and I, and I say his girlfriend, what a stupid thing to say because Meryl's a fantastic writer in her own right, but she did happen to be his girlfriend at the time. Anyway, she was uh, terrific, and she and I wrote it together. We wrote it um, uh, in the house uh, where Dave and Meryl lived, and uh, he would come in and uh, hear some of the things we were working on, and it was fun. And uh, the show was good, but he was actually pretty bad. He was so nervous, and he was so not in control, 180 degrees from what he became. But he really did not control the situation or the interviews but it was good enough that NBC saw something and hired him, and uh, the rest is history. Let me ask you something. When you've now obviously worked with a lot of different um, comedians and, and in writing gigs and so on, um, can anyone be a comic or a comedian? Or is Absolutely there something? Absolutely not. And yeah. one of the things when I got into teaching is, you know, all my friends were teaching screenwriting. And I thought, you know, I don't think that's really honest because you can't teach someone to be a screenwriter or a comedian. What you can do is take someone with comedic talent and make them better. But you can't take someone without comedic talent and give it to them. If you don't know timing, if you don't know what's funny, you can't do it. Now, here's an example. Lucille Ball always said, I am not at all funny. 
I need a good writer to give me funny words and funny things to do, and I can do the hell out of them. I'm a great comic actress, but I cannot be funny on my own. And so there's an example of someone who's not funny, who's a comedian, but clearly she knew what funny was, and that's the key. So you can't mold someone in that way, but you can take someone with talent or with at least a comic sensibility and teach them how to do it professionally. And the sensibility has a lot to do with are the, what they're processing and what their physical affect is and their their ability to understand timing and so on and so forth, I would assume. Yeah, there's there's certain instincts, but, you know, one of the things I do in my talks is try and stress how comedy – despite the way I think some people think of it as inferior to, say, drama, is really uh, the same as any of the great art forms. It has all the same basic principles. It has all the same basic mechanics. The uh, talent it takes to do comedy is no different, and the, the way you come into it is basically the same thing, which is you have to look at life a little askew. You have to look at it from an angle. You have to look at it from a perspective. If you're totally inside something, you can't really adjust it. You can't really artistically affect it. So all comedians and I think all artists are to some degree outsiders looking at things rather than being inside the thing. I understand what you're saying. If you... um Look back uh, over your years in entertainment. Um, who are some of your most favorite comedians or comics, whether in acting, well, stand-up? Yeah, I mean, one important thing to remember is uh, there's a Shakespeare quote that I use quite a bit, which is, um, uh, uh, "Jest's prosperity lies not in the tongue of him that makes it, but in the ear of him that hears it. And what that means right. is, no one can tell you what is funny. What right. I try and do is tell people what funny is, but there's a big difference. And so my choices doesn't by any means mean these are the funniest people. It just means the people I like the best. And the people I like the best are people who do things differently than has been done before. So Marx Brothers, who came out of a straightforward vaudeville tradition, but sort of took it to the nth degree by injecting silliness, which sort of blends into genuine surrealism and and just, you know, uh, over-the-top funniness. Uh, Buster Keaton, who preceded them, uh, is really my idol. Uh, He was a silent comedian, and uh, if you want to see one movie of his, see Sherlock Jr. If you want to see something that's a little um, more full-length motion picture, you can see The General. But he just uh, transcended, I think, all comics, including, in my opinion, Charlie Chaplin, who I love, in in Keaton having a sort of existential view of comedy, uh, sort of Mm -hmm. seeing humor and human beings and their struggle against existence in this hilarious way. Uh, And then in stand-ups, I have three idols. Woody Allen, yes, I know, yes, I know. He's still one of the most brilliant stand-up comics in history. Steve Martin, and what what Woody Allen did was bring the idea of sort of an intellectual perspective to the whole thing. Steve Martin, who brought, again, a wonderful sense of surrealism and uh, said he was inspired to do comedy by a college course on existentialism, which says that there is no meaning. And he said if there's no meaning, then that means jokes don't have to be set up punchline. They can be something entirely different. And he did it. 
and uh, Richard Pryor, who everyone thinks of as in terms of uh, sex and obscenity, but actually was the first comedian that I I feel was the first comedian who really brought a strong sense of his own personality and his own life into it. It wasn't jokes, it was life, and uh, a vulnerability that almost no comic, maybe a little Lenny Bruce, but almost no comic had done before him, uh, talking about how horrible he could be with women and yet how uh, vulnerable to them he felt, and many other things. Just his first uh, uh, filmed concert, Richard Pryor in Concert from 1978, is, I think, the single best stand-up routine in history, and the heart attack bit within it, the single best bit. Um, so, and then Monty Python, who again, I'm a big fan of surrealism, and Python had this wonderful sense right. of anything Thank goes. You. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, those are some of them. Are there any? Oh, and by the way, talk? just a side note, though, Rachel Bloom is spectacular. I thought Crazy oh, Ex-Girlfriend. Okay. Uh, I wasn't totally sold on it as a sitcom or as a as a show itself, and not all the musical numbers were great, but so many of the musical numbers were utterly hilarious, and it's so sad. Adam Schlesinger, who had a big part in the yeah. musical satire yeah. and that show, died uh, last away. week. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, here we are. I introduced the show as Laughter in the Time of Coronavirus. Mm. Um and I, I think it's important that we have conversations like this. I think it's important for people to remember that, yes, laughter may not be the cure-all, but laughter helps us deal um, uh, and maybe takes us out of our own real life for a little while, just as you're saying, it's a little bit surreal. Do you think that's true? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, it isn't a great insight, to say, a scientific insight to say laughter makes you feel better. But that whole thing of being taken out of yourself is, again, that whole thing of life viewed from an angle. When you yourself are laughing, in well, actually, <laughs> I have a whole section uh, in the book and in my talks about orgasm. Now, why did I bring that up? And the reason is I think that orgasm and laughter are essentially the same thing. They both are tremendously powerful physical reactions usually uh, shown by uh, staccato bursts of vocalization. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And in the moment that that is happening, you're out of yourself. It's one of those blissful moments when you are not thinking about coronavirus or money or your job or anything. You are free. Now, it isn't long. In sex, of course, it's only just a couple seconds because sex doesn't last longer than that. But uh, I'm joking. But uh, in laughter, it is only a couple seconds. In fact, I think a laugh is often less than a second. But it's a powerful second. You're filled with those with adrenaline. You're filled with uh, excitement. You're, and you're mostly filled with feeling. There's no thought in that moment. And the idea yes. of being freed from our minds and our problems for even just a few seconds is so powerful that I think people get it and want more of it. I remember having conversations with, with certain people where we would have peals of laughter where we'd be crying. I mean, for 30 yeah. minutes at a time. And afterward, you're just exhausted from it. But I have gone back to some of those moments myself and still laugh about them. Well, you know, there's a uh, you know, form of yoga called laughter yoga, which was invented in India. 
and it consists of laughing for an hour. You're with a group of people, and at the beginning it's forced. You're forcing laughter, but then you start laughing at the way the other people are laughing, and the laughter yes. becomes real, and it builds on itself. But then in yet another phase, you can't really be amused that long. It's just the physical act of laughing, which is, as you say, exhausting. It's a form of exercise, after yes. all. And yes. um, that laughter in the belief of the people who practice laughter yoga cleanses you and uh, leaves you free to uh, address life in a more powerful way. I think you're right. I think you're right. I want to touch on one more thing before we go, because um, I've taken a lot of your time already, but I want more. Um, <laughs> you also you also wrote for film. So, um, And one of the, the movies that you wrote for was The Muppets Take Manhattan. Tell me your experience with that and writing for film. Well, it was great fun. Um, I worked very closely with Frank Oz, the director, and he was oh, terrific. Yeah. Work, but he he had his very own idea of what the movie should be, as is appropriate for the director, and it was different from mine. Uh, the last movie before that had been uh, The Great Muppet Caper, which was shot in yes. London and had a bunch of British comedians in it. And I loved it because it was really silly, and it did not do well. And Frank thought that it was important to get back to the basics of the Muppets, which was sort of a great family feeling. You know, it's a group of Muppets, and they all love each other, and uh, blah, blah, blah. So that's great, but I kept coming up with these surrealistic bits, and he'd say, very funny, David, but calm it down. <laughs> we, we really want to keep this grounded. So the movie was, I felt, more grounded than it needed to be. And after we finished, he, he said, you know, I think you may have been right. I think we could have put in a little more comedy. But there was enough, and a lot of people loved the movie, so more power to them. Uh, and it was incredible fun shooting it. It was a privilege to work with the Muppets. And we shot around New York City, uh, in, like in Central Park, with the great dancer Gregory Hines in a, in a season. Oh, gosh, yeah. Hundreds of people gathered around to watch. And uh, between takes, uh, Frank Oz and uh, Jim Henson, as Kermit and Piggy with their hair, you know, uh, Frank always said, I've spent half my life with my hand up a pig's ass. And so he and uh, Jim would ad lib as Kermit and Piggy between takes, and it was just nothing but filth, just nothing but dirty sex jokes and stuff. And it was so funny. People were just falling down laughing. And I loved the way I looked at the crowd once in a while, tore my eyes away from Jim and Frank, and looked at the crowd, and all of them were staring off the ground. They were staring at the puppets of Kermit and Piggy, ignoring the gigantic men, both of both Jim and Frank were like six two or six three, ignoring them because they were just transfixed by the puppets and believed they were real <laughs> to some degree. Uh, and the that. men were just, you know, like attendees. <laughs> and That's I love so the way funny. that uh, they were so strong in their uh, in their uh, imaginings of these these puppets that uh, they could make people's eyes go only to the pieces of felt. <laughs> wow! Would you tell everyone your website, please, David? It's the very difficult to remember davidmish.com, M-I-S-C-H, first part of Michigan. And uh, there is one page there, the video page, where you can see many, 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 many video clips of uh, the different talks I do, uh, which are great fun, and uh, someone should hire me for Zoom. <laughs> well, they should. 
I agree. I should you should be a regular guest on this network. Um, what are your what are your parting words to audiences uh, to people listening tonight about comedy, about la- uh, laughter in the time of corona and and life in general? Well, I'll tell you the the main, my main uh, purpose in doing all these talks in the last and books and and classes in the last Ten years have been to overcome the idea that comedy is a second-class art form. That because it can be silly, that therefore it's lighter and less significant. I think it's inc- I think it's as significant and as powerful, uh, as emotional, as intellectually stimulating, as difficult as any of the other art forms: painting, music, dance. And uh, the line I usually say is that um, you know if you think comedy is a second-class art form, try to imagine life without it. Try to imagine right. life without laughter, without lightness, and uh, I think you'd be pretty miserable. So especially nowadays, uh, it's something to cultivate, and there are many opportunities. Now, and, you know, I must say, in the years since I've been doing this, the world has changed, and I think comedy has risen in the world. Uh, you know, we have uh, comedians now as the leaders of nation, uh, the well-known yes. President of Ukraine was a TV right. comedian before being elected, and uh, there are other examples. Uh, anyway, it's a it's a it's a horrible time for so many things, but it's a great time for comedy, and there's really no excuse for not lightening your burden with some of it. Absolutely, uh, this is author, comedian, songwriter, scriptwriter, screenwriter David Mish. It has just been such a pleasure speaking to you. Will you come back again sometime? Be delighted to. Thank you so much for being with me. Be safe at home. Keep writing. Keep Zooming. And I look forward to speaking to you again, David. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's our show for tonight, folks. So glad you'd be with me. Thank you so much. And thank you, Mom and Dad. Be safe, y'all. Thank you.